You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we jump in, just want to remind you that we have a campaign going on. We're trying to shoot for 1611 patrons. One, we want to keep the podcast ad-free, but two... We want to be able to transcribe this podcast just so that people can have more access, people who need access, and also people who just want that access. And so we've had that request over and over. We want to be able to provide that not only into the future in all future episodes, but we want to go back into the archive and transcribe all of those episodes as well. So if you feel so inclined, head to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Speaking of archives, today you're in for a treat. We're looking back at season one with Megan DeFranza, The Bible and Intersex Believers. This was one of my favorite episodes from season one, and frankly, one of the favorite episodes that we've done. And uh, just a lot of appreciation for Megan's insights. So hope you enjoy this, The Bible and Intersex Believers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bible for Normal People podcast. Our topic today is... The Bible and Intersex Believers, and our guest is Megan DeFranza. She is a theologian, and she's currently serving as a visiting researcher at Boston University School of Theology. And uh, that's pretty impressive, folks. Don't know if I have to tell you that, but it is. And uh, she's written a wonderful book, too, Sex Difference in Christian Theology. And this topic, you know, the Bible and intersex believers, like, what is that? What does that even mean? Well, that's, you know, Megan's going to help us understand that, because I, I know I can speak for myself and for Jared a little bit, too. You know, I'm 56 years old. When I was in high school, like, what? This wasn't even on the yeah. radar. You know, last year, this wasn't, wasn't on, on my radar, radar screen. Right. It wasn't until Megan came to speak at Eastern University, where I teach, where she's talking, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know any of this, and it's really interesting, and it affects people's lives in ways that I can't even imagine. Yeah, and after uh, after she spoke at Eastern, Pete uh, was telling me about it over dinner or something, and uh, and I had to talk with her, so I just got on the phone right mm-hmm. after that and said, what is this? What is this that you're doing? I don't understand. And it's just really fascinating. So I was really excited mm-hmm. to have her on mm-hmm. the podcast and just explain it, even for me to better understand. Right. And it's it's one of these issues that, you know, is all around us, I guess, in the sense that it, it can be somewhat unsettling and uncomfortable and even divisive among people because, you know, you have to engage the Bible at some point. Well, the thing is that that's exactly what Megan does. All she does is engage the Bible and the history of interpretation of the Bible and, you know, theology and, and, and all the those church and the ancient church yeah. and ancient rabbinic readings of, of biblical texts to show, I think, a rather surprising story that intersex is not a new issue People have been thinking about that and commenting on it for a long time. And for us today, for whom it's, you know, people like me and Jared, it's like new, like where have we been? Uh, but we were never taught this, mm-hmm. right, in seminary, right? And I never really thought through it and never had to because it wasn't in, you know, brought to my attention. But this is an issue that, like other issues, for example, you know, uh, it could be gender equality or it could be same-sex marriage or something. It's it's so potentially volatile, it actually forces you to go back and re-examine your own thinking, your own theology, and biblical texts. And you actually can't get around that once you start listening to people who actually know the topic of how, of how, um, uh, of how much there is actually in the Bible that can help us think through some of these kinds of issues, but it's sometimes, sometimes like buried or just sidelined uh, because, again, it's not where we are. We, we come at the Bible with our questions already pre-made, and what these issues do is they force us to ask different kinds of questions we never would have thought of, thought of on our own. And, and unearths our assumptions. I appreciate right. how when you look at the Bible through a particular lens, it helps you understand that you've been making assumptions all along that you didn't even know. Right, right. Good. Well, let's have this conversation with Megan. We've done our theological reflection. We've done our biblical study only thinking about these idealized versions of male and female. And that's not good enough. 
We have to do our biblical study and our thinking theologically about what it means to be human and what it means to be a faithful Christian in a way that includes everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done that yet. And mm-hmm. so let's start a new conversation. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to the podcast, Megan. It's very nice to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, we're the topic today is the Bible and the intersex believer. And this term, I, I think it's fair to say neither Pete nor I had ever really come into contact with that term before we met you, Megan, maybe last year or a few years ago. So can you bring us up to speed on what it is we're talking about? I mean, if we don't know what it is, nobody knows what it's it right, is. That's right. That's the way I look at it. Clearly. So That's fairly common. Well, the reason it's new is because it's a fairly new term for a very old phenomenon. And intersex is just a broad umbrella term to talk about bodies that don't fit the medical definitions of male or female. So there's a mix of male and female characteristics in the same body. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. So what would be some common things, just concrete examples of where this term might be appropriate for for people? Yeah. So one of the most common kinds of intersex is something called androgen insensitivity. So you have a baby that's born with XY chromosomes, which is your typical male pattern. And they make the gonads, which are neutral in the first few weeks of gestation, go and become testes that start secreting the typical levels of male hormones. But at the cellular level, the cells can't process those male hormones. So the body defaults to female. So on the inside, it looks like male anatomy. And on the outside, it looks like female anatomy. So that's a fairly common kind of intersex. You can also have the opposite with XX chromosomes and ovaries, but uh, with extra production or higher than typical production of androgens that can make a female body look more masculine or anywhere in between. Uh, Something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So all these fancy medical terms, which is why we use the generic (laughs) intersex most of the time. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's, that's, that's very helpful to distinguish intersex from other terms that float around like whatever. I mean, the, the, the alphabet soup, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and this is something that is, 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 as you said, a new term that people are uh, maybe beginning to see and maybe come to terms with for the sake of a, of a population that probably feels, I would imagine, rather isolated and misunderstood. Yeah. An older term would be hermaphrodite or androgyne, mm-hmm. but those are mythological creatures that have full sets of male and female anatomy which is humanly impossible, which is one of the reasons we've moved away from that language towards stuff that's more precise to the particular variations of individual people. Well, okay, you've, you've written just a wonderful and, and tremendously scholarly and well-researched book, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, and you have a website that is just very informative. It's just, it's a wonderful thing to visit if, if people, you know, if you want to know anything, folks, that's where you go. To me, the race is just a a question of curiosity. What is it in your life that is is driving you to be passionate and supportive of the intersex community? So I started this work because I grew up in a very conservative church where being a woman with a mind was a problem. And so I started studying gender and sex difference and biblical scholarship and history and all of that to try and figure out how I could serve God and not sin because I happen to have a female body. And that led me to research to talk about that there are not just 
male and female in the world, that there are all these intersex variations as well. And it was hearing those stories, the stories of individuals, particularly recent medical history, where with our advanced technology, we, I would say here in the United States and Europe and elsewhere, have tried to fix intersex doctors come in to a baby that is born with ambiguous genitalia and they'll say, wait a minute, well, we can figure this out. And so they'll, they'll do plastic surgery on the genitals of a child to make them look more typically male or female. But these surgeries are, have lasting harm, pain for life <laughs> for many, many people. So hearing their stories of physical pain, of feeling unsafe to share their stories in their own faith communities, their churches, pastors saying, thanks for telling me, but please don't tell anybody else, really drove me to realize that my questions about gender and my frustrations as a woman in the church were small in comparison with my intersex siblings in Christ who had all of these added complications And so it was really hearing their stories that led me to say, we've got to do something about this. So, you know, as we get into the topic, it's just interesting to me the, you know, the contrast that I think maybe some of our listeners will have where you're talking, using a lot of medical terms and talking about the technology and the science of a lot of things here. And then how does that connect, you know, we're the Bible for normal people. So, Say more maybe about how your story um, coincides as you became aware of all this um, within the church communities. When did you start thinking about how the Bible fits into all this? Well, for me, the Bible was the place I started. And so reading scriptures about women's place in the church led me to go back and look at history and realize that in Christian history, we've thought about gender differences very differently over the last 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. So, getting into that history, Mm -hmm. the history of biblical interpretation really was the thing that moved me to say, wait a minute, if we've thought about this differently in the past, that gives us opportunity to think differently and maybe in fresh ways in the present about differences that actually the ancient church was quite familiar with, but we've lost that language and knowledge, even though our science is more sophisticated. Well, can you give an example or two? Because I can imagine people listening saying, what are you talking about? We <laughs> just sure. had this conversation about gender and, 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 you know, we thought what we think today is what people have always thought, which is a typical question response. And what I think is what the church has always thought, but you're saying it's more diverse and very early on. St. Augustine in the city of God talks about hermaphrodites. He says, as for hermaphrodites, also called androgynes, they're certainly very rare, but every culture has people that they don't know how to classify as male or female. In our culture, we call them by the better sex. We call them men. Hmm. So here's Augustine saying, oh yeah, everybody knows about hermaphrodites. We kind of assign them on the masculine side. And, and in the ancient world, in Rome and Greece, there were laws for men and laws for women and laws for hermaphrodites and laws for other categories of people that we'll talk about probably as we continue here. So was there a... I mean, with Augustine, for example, who lived around when? He lived in the the third, fourth century Mm -hmm. in the Christian era. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a long time ago. It is. (laughs) Uh, Was there a tone of, I guess, judgment in reading Augustine about what we call intersex? Or was he just sort of matter of fact about it? In that passage, he's very matter of fact, actually. Just stating a fact that everyone's aware of. Sort of not freaked out about it. Not freaked out. He's much more concerned about castrated eunuchs and their place in pagan religious cults, and he speaks very harshly of them. But he's very matter-of-fact and fairly neutral when it comes to... You say neutral. It's interesting to me that um, what I heard you say, and maybe I misheard, was... Yeah, we have this category of people, and we, as a community, assign them to the male mm-hmm. side of things, which actually, it seems like there's some social consequences to that, and it would be more of a place, place of privilege at that point. Right. For hermaphrodites, Augustine is giving them the, the male privilege, whereas it's interesting, because so castrated men, men who'd had their testes crushed or cut off at birth and who developed differently or who maybe did that later on in life, he says of them that they are no longer men. Hmm. 
even though they were born whole. Uh-huh. That's confusing. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, I mean, not, not to push examples, but again, just to fill things out for the benefit of people listening, do you, can you point to something else that might be instructive for us, another example or two from, from this maybe ancient church period or, or, or from other cultures perhaps? Well, certainly in the Jewish culture, there was a recognition of more than male or female. So the ancient rabbis came up with four additional categories between male and female. One was a naturally born eunuch, Another, which they classified more on the masculine side, but not all the way over to the male. They have another term called the ilonite, which was toward the feminine side, but again, not all the way to the edge. They used also the term androgynos for someone who's right in the middle. They don't, didn't know how to classify them one way or the other. And then they had a fourth term, which was really something they said, we're not sure what we're dealing with now, but we're pretty sure their sex will become clear over time. Hmm. So, yeah. so and, and they developed laws and rituals, religious laws to govern these various persons and would debate those throughout the centuries. So tying it to the Bible itself then, you know, we have the ancient church and we have this Jewish tradition where you know, Augustine and the rabbis recognized different uh, categories. You know, the often the the argument, or at least the conversation, when it comes to the Bible, goes back to Genesis. Right. And it is well, God created the male and female. Right. So, um, how does that square with this conversation? And that's where we all start, right? But this is where it's important to recognize that the Bible is a big book. And that Genesis is not the whole of the story. So certainly we have the beginning. God creates them male and female in God's image and blesses them that way. But does that mean that that's all God created or all God intended? And now that we have this other language that I just mentioned um, from the ancient rabbis, we can look for other language in scripture. And that's what I was so delighted to find in my research is actually none other than Jesus speaks about intersex people with one of these categories that the rabbis mention in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, where he's being asked about whether or not you can divorce your wife if she burns the toast, uh, for he's being asked to weigh in on this ancient debate about what, how bad does the infraction have to be for you to you know, divorce your wife? And Jesus quotes Genesis 1, says, don't you remember God made them male and female? He quotes Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then his disciples say, well, you know, if we can't get out of marriage, we don't really, maybe we shouldn't get into it since our parents are typically choosing a spouse for us. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not understanding what I'm saying. There are those who've been eunuchs from birth, there are those who make them, who's been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. And I like to say, let anyone accept this who has any idea what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and the church has debated, what did this mean? What, what did it mean to make oneself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom? We know a lot more about this second category, those who've been made eunuchs. That's the castrated men that I just mentioned. Very common slaves, very um, expensive slaves, luxury items, status symbols, and sometimes even sex slaves in the ancient world. Castrati were very, very common. So we know a lot about that. But this first category of the eunuch from birth, Jesus is drawing on this ancient rabbinic language of the eunuch of the sun, as it is in Hebrew. So that from the day the sun first shone upon the child, we knew this one was different. So here's Jesus. In the context of talking about divorce and certainly affirming Genesis, he throws in these other categories. And he doesn't do it with any sort of criticism. He doesn't say, oh, but God didn't mean for it to be this way. He just lays it out there. And that pushed me to think, okay, how do we take Genesis and give it its place in the canon at the beginning, but also recognize that we have to find a way to read Genesis in a way that fits with these words of Jesus, so how do we do that? Mm-hmm. So that's what I so, was... I mean, this is beyond then a, obviously, sort of a, all parts of the Bible are equally ultimate. And 
read verses and they tell you what to think. You're, you're actually describing a dynamism in the Bible that we have to take all this into account somehow and make, not to put words in your mouth, but to make theological decisions on the basis of this this grand conversation maybe that's happening in the Bible? Is that a fair way of putting it? Well, the theological decisions are how to interpret the description that God yeah. made male and female. Right. Because it doesn't say God made male and female and anything else is a result of the fall. And yet, that's a very quick theological mm-hmm. move that many Christians make that, oh, if there's not male and female, then anything else must be a result of sin. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus doesn't do that in Matthew chapter 19. The text doesn't tell us that, so that's a, a theological reading we're bringing to the passage. But mm-hmm. does it say that? And so, I asked, are there other ways that we can read Genesis that make it fit <laughs> with the words of Jesus and with the larger canon altogether? And I think there, there are ways that we can. We could read Adam and Eve as the parents at the beginning of the story, rather than, say, the pattern for all people. Mm -hmm. We could read them as the statistical majority. Most people are clearly male or clearly female. But just because they're the statistical majority doesn't mean they're the exclusive model or the only way that God allows humans to be born. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And when we look at other parts of, say, Genesis 1, we recognize that there are all sorts of things that aren't named in the creation account. There are three different types of animals. There are the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the creatures that crawl upon the earth. These are the three categories of animals that God creates. Well, we all know that there are creatures that don't fit into those categories. 
penguins are birds that don't fly. There are other things in the sea other than fish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are things that crawl, but they live in the water. There are amphibians Mm -hmm. that are both water and land animals. But I've never heard an Old Testament scholar like yourself, Pete, say, hey, look, frogs, they're proof of the fall. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't fit into the three categories. Hey, that's my next blog post. That's my next blog post. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in in the Bible, I mean, what you're saying is, I think, exactly right. I think the response would be from people that, okay, well, listen, in... In the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, when you have clean and unclean animals, see some of these in between things, like you don't eat lobster. Right. They're sea animals, but they also have legs. So they don't fit. So they're unclean. Right. And you don't eat them. And this is something I can imagine people as sort of a counterpoint to what you're saying, you know, to draw on that. So how might you sort of navigate that particular issue? Well, I think the canon gives us a way to do that, too. So even if we see them as outsiders, right, lobsters are outsiders, bees are outsiders, uh, frogs are outsiders, and maybe this other category of people who don't fit into male and female. Well, certainly in the Old Testament, we have, you know, laws for men and laws for women, and and it doesn't leave a lot of place for anyone who doesn't fit those categories. But fast forward up to the prophet Isaiah, In chapter 56, he talks about two categories of outsiders, one being the eunuch and the other being foreigners, Gentiles. And they're complaining like, hey, God, it's not all that easy to be a eunuch or a Gentile and live in ancient Israel. Like, the system isn't set up for us. And God says through the prophet Isaiah to them in Isaiah 56, don't let the eunuchs complain that I'm only a dry tree. For to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and obey me, and there's a long list of things, I will give to them within my house a name, an everlasting name that shall, better than sons and daughters, a name that will not be cut off. And then he speaks to the foreigners and says that their offerings will be accepted on his altar, for my house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples, that Isaiah 56, 8, that we're much more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Well, that's in the context of God mm-hmm. folding in <coughs> outsiders mm-hmm. who didn't fit in earlier chapters of the story. Mm-hmm. But God is saying, don't worry, I'm going to give you a place. And he doesn't say to the eunuch, I'm going to heal you and make you into the categories I intended, either male and female. He says, I'm going to give you something better than sons and daughters. I'm going to bless you in a way that a Jewish man or Jewish woman could never even imagine being blessed. I'm going to give you an everlasting name. So no talk about eunuchs being a product of the fall any more than foreigners would be right. a product of the fall. And, and there's nothing in Isaiah, I mean, I'm just curious now because I haven't studied this as closely as you have, but there's no indication there of how they came to be eunuchs. Nope. Okay. And that's the challenge is that, like intersex is this broad umbrella term for many different bodily variations. This term eunuch was an umbrella term for many different things. So sometimes it's hard to tell, Is does this mean a castrated eunuch? Does this mean a natural eunuch? Is this a position in the court? So we have to do careful scholarship to see what, what they're talking about. So it's not particularly clear in Isaiah. And yet there is this idea that however these people came to be eunuchs, God's blessing them as they are, not requiring them to become something they're not, or healing them into some creational category that we find in Genesis chapter one and two. Hi there, Mike here, and I'm from the producers group. I wanted to take a moment to let you in on a little secret. You too can be part of us normal people in supporting this podcast. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the normal people everywhere who make this podcast possible and special. Not only would you help support the podcast, but you can unlock secret bonus stuff like access to the Slack community for discussion and extra videos and posts by Pete and Jared. So get online, go to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people and support the podcast. You can also rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Of course, if you're not ready to support the podcast, buckle up as we continue. Before we move on, though, I want to say a quick thanks to some of our other producers here at the Bible for Normal People. These people help the podcast improve in big ways and even subtle ways. A big shout out to Russ Moore, Becky Davenport, Ed, 
Book Notes, Burt Crossland, Viviana Eastwood, Fred Foth, and Robert Off. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. All right, folks, let the good times roll. That's a really good point. <clears throat> One thing I'm thinking as as you guys are talking about the categories, and we keep coming back to kind of the words and how uh, there's different uh, variations. Can you, I think, I want to make sure that we're being clear too about how, how is intersex different than say transgender, which is becoming more and more uh, a conversation, uh, you know, politically and otherwise. So what, right. the right. how does that fit in this conversation? Sure. Right now, the only difference between intersex and transgender people is that transgender people cannot point to a medical diagnosis. Hmm. I know trans people who have said, I wish I were interested because then people wouldn't think I'm crazy. They would be able to say, oh, no, they, some of their cells are XY. Some of their cells have just one X. No wonder their body is developing differently or their gender identity is developing differently. They don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some intersex people whose experience is like that of a trans person. I work with Leanne Simon, who's a wonderful mm-hmm. Christian woman and author, and she has what I just described. Some of her cells are XY. Some have just one X. Her gonads are part ovarian tissue, part testicular tissue. At puberty, she didn't develop one way or the other and chose to, though she was identified as a boy at birth, it wasn't a fit for her. And so as an adult, chose to identify as female and and to live, to transition. So in many ways, her experience is intersex, but it's also could be understood as transgender. That's not the majority of intersex experiences. So sometimes these terms overlap and right. sometimes they don't. So And where they don't, what I hear you saying is there's not a chromosomal or maybe a biological thing that you can pinpoint. At this point, where our science is, um, it may be that as neuroscience advances, we will be able to pinpoint other things, but, but we can't at this point. Good. I, I just think that's an important piece of the conversation so that we don't sure. use those, but I hear it's kind of a Venn diagram. <laughs> yep. Well, um, Megan, where, again, I just, you know, you've thought so much about this. Uh, we talked about Augustine a little bit and rabbis and Jesus's own words and Genesis, which, you know, how that all fits into this and Isaiah. And, and, and I think people still come back to Genesis as sort of like, because it's first, it's therefore determinative of everything else. Sure. Uh, but you, you don't think that. And help people walk through why it's okay not to think that, because it's at the beginning of the Bible. Sure. You get this wrong, you get everything else wrong. And plus, it's all good. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is important. And it does set the stage for the beginning of God's great redemptive story. But it's not the whole of the story. And so I see its pride of place is as the opening chapters. But at the end of the story, we find a vision of heaven in the book of Revelation where people are included in the worshiping community who don't fit in the garden. And here I'm thinking of Revelation chapter 7, where there's a great multitude worshiping before the Lamb from every tribe and nation and language people group. Mm -hmm. And if we think about Genesis, we don't have multiple tribes. We don't have racial difference in the Garden of Eden. We don't have different languages represented at the beginning. There are many ways in which the story that starts with these two ends up in full, you know, moving Mm -hmm. through Adam and Noah and Abraham and, you know, all the way through and then folding in the Gentiles and folding in others. And it's a story that that gets bigger and wider and God's redemptive love goes out. He blesses the Israelites so that they could be a blessing to all the nations. And so it's this narrow story through these few for the benefit of all, mm-hmm. which is why I think it, it isn't. We see many things in the book of Revelation that echo things in the garden. There are trees at the beginning and at the end, but they're not the same trees, mm-hmm. right? So it's important that we don't think that we're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. Yes, it has pride of place at the beginning of God's story, but it seems like God's story gets bigger and more complicated, but also more beautiful and more welcoming than 
what it is in the mm-hmm. first chapters. It's like the garden reimagined at the end. Yeah, it is. It's, you're not actually returning to the garden. You're, I mean, that's metaphorical language anyway, but right. you know, it's, it's something that is meant to uh, evoke those memories, mm-hmm. but then also to go beyond that to something that, I mean. Only and it's that, called new. Right? It's, it's new, called right. new creation. <clears throat> right. So it's not paradise lost and regained, like mm-hmm. we're trying to get back. But no, it's it's a new, cre- God is doing something new at the end of this grand story that is going to have some continuity which with what came before and some differences. Well, and I appreciate, Megan, what you said about the, the as you talked about Isaiah, and, and as the story unfolds, it's interesting that we may start with the garden but this, this uh, narrative of inclusivity of folding more and more people in really starts just a few chapters later with the start of Israel with the Abraham story. Right. And then from there, we just start including more. I just appreciated the point about how Israel was then adopted to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. So, and then through that, the blessing is this inclusivity. And it's interesting in this conversation that early on in the prophetic literature of Isaiah that the eunuchs are included pretty early in on that conversation. You know what's even more radical than that? Mm -hmm. Is if we look at Acts chapter 8, at the first foreigner who's baptized. You took the words right out of my mouth. Go ahead. Let's talk (laughs) about the Ethiopian. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. This is the (laughs) Ethiopian who's a eunuch, who is the very fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, that as the gospel is going out, from Judea through Samaria to the utter ends of the earth, as Jesus said to his disciples at the end of the book of Matthew. And we see these significant baptisms in the book of Acts. And the first foreigner who's baptized is an Ethiopian eunuch who's made this many hundred mile trek to Jerusalem to worship, even though he's an outsider on many levels. He knows there's only so close he can get to God because there's the Holy of Holies, there's the court of men. Outside of that is the court of women. Outside of that is the court of Gentiles. There, there's only so close you can get to God mm-hmm. as a Gentile and as a eunuch. And he knows that, but he goes anyway. And so as he's reading the prophet Isaiah, hmm, isn't that interesting? God sends Philip <laughs> to him to interpret the scriptures, to open them, and to share with him the good news of Jesus. And this Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, look, here's water. Is there anything preventing me from being baptized? Now, I have read that passage my whole life. Mm -hmm. But until I studied the place of eunuchs in the ancient world, I never understood the significance of that question. Right, right. Here he's asking, what's my place going to be if I follow this rabbi Jesus? Right. Am I going to be a second-class citizen like I am as, you know, a non-Jewish believer? Mm-hmm. Is there a place for me in this mm-hmm. new community? And I'm just so frustrated that we don't have the answer given to us in Acts. We don't know what Philip said, but we know that one of them commanded the chariot to stop. And they both got out of the chariot and Philip baptized him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I mean, I think I've always read that instinctively. Is anything preventing you know me from getting baptized as sort of like, well, we've got some time on our hands. Let's just do this now. <laughs> Right. And, and not like they're, they're actually socio-cultural, religious. There's a matrix there yeah. of this. And, and uh, boy, it's, it, you know, this, they, I don't know, maybe the Bible is surprisingly not uptight. <laughs> Go figure. God does tend to surprise us well, at every turn. You know, I'm, I'm wondering with, with that, I, think that's a, I was just kind of thinking about, this this connection, this phrase of foreigners and eunuchs, yeah, and how that goes throughout of the, the the Bible. I mean, in some ways, do you feel like the foreigners is clearly throughout the Bible representative of the marginalized, kind of throughout as we get to the Gentiles and others? Is eunuchs also because I guess what I'm I'm channeling kind of my my uh, my upbringing where I'd want to take that literally and say, okay, well, I'm willing to now because you you raise some good points, Megan. I'm gonna. I'm going to allow for eunuchs as part of this, mm-hmm. but now I'm going to still exclude others mm-hmm. because it doesn't say it literally and specifically. But is there a case to be made in terms of reading and how we read the Bible 
for taking foreigners and eunuchs is almost representative of, hey, this is a narrative of inclusion. And so you can't really accept the eunuchs and exclude transgender people. You can't really take this group and exclude that group because it's really representative of this radical inclusion. I mean, what, what would you say? Well, I, first I would say that in, in some ways, Gentile or foreigner is not a category of the marginalized, if you think just statistically, right? Right, right. Everyone who's not a Jew <laughs> is yeah. a foreigner, right? And, the majority, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and throughout Israel's history, they were oppressed by these majority yeah. communities, so they were the minority, right? So you could really read that two different ways, but definitely with the eunuchs, we're talking about people who have been oppressed in many different ways and excluded in many different ways. And even though the rabbis made space for naturally born eunuchs and well, castrated eunuchs couldn't go to worship in ancient Israel, naturally born eunuchs could, but they in some ways had a double religious duty because the rabbis are pulling from the laws for men and the laws for women and, you know, wanting to make sure they're all their all of their bases are covered. And so, yeah, they, they are these, this minority group that has more to do, that it's harder for them. And so I do think that category is one of certainly that stands for the outsider and the marginalized mm-hmm. than those who have been excluded, whose voices haven't been heard, who've been considered unclean and not welcome in the worshiping community. Well, let me ask you a question here, Megan. Um, and I, I'm trying to, as I'm sitting here thinking, I want to try to articulate this Clearly, following on what Jared just said about eunuchs and, and the poor and the oppressed, marginalized peoples, and you see in the, like in Isaiah, and then in the New Testament in Matthew 19 and Acts 8, you see a hint, mm. a, a trajectory of, yeah. and I want to ask you if you agree with this, and if yes, great, if not, that's fine, tell me why. It, it seems like the New Testament itself is not the end of the story. It's trajectories. It's it's right. Okay, that's that's an important thing to point to to sort of talk about for people who take the Bible seriously, right? The the Bible, even the New Testament, does not settle all these questions for us, but is itself part of a moment that is also, let's say, moving. Right. So I I gather you're agreeing with that. So regale us on your opinion further. Well, it's not. I mean, I was helped in this regard. I remember in seminary reading uh, N.T. Wright's book, The New Testament and the People of God, where he likens the Bible to five acts in a Shakespearean play where the fifth act is unfinished. Mm-hmm. And so he sees creation as act one, fall as act two, Israel act three, Jesus is act four, and the act five is the church. And we have only the first few pages of the script in the mm-hmm. New Testament. But we are not, we are called to finish the story. We're called to live our parts. We're not called to be first century Christians in Rome or in Corinth or in Ephesus. We're called to be 21st century Christians living where we live. Mm-hmm. And so it, we're seeing, we're not trying to get back to ancient Israel. He keeps saying, if we're going to put on this play, back to the analogy with Shakespeare, we're not just going to repeat lines from an earlier part of the story. We're going to study the whole story. We're going to see what direction it's going. We're going to pick up on those hints that you just mentioned. And if we're going to put on this play, we're going to have to improv. And so he uses this term faithful improvisation, where we're mm-hmm. trying to see what, where is the story going and how do we live in right. our part faithfully, yet without a script. I guess I would add to that, that fifth act analogously is, is you see that in the Bible anyway, because people are winging it. <laughs> you know, and I think that's, that's yeah. not a bad way of putting it, that, that right. in the Old Testament you have shifts and changes and new perspectives on yeah. old things. It seems inescapable. And, and I think to help people say it's okay to think responsibly and theologically and biblically today about an issue that maybe we have to address in different ways than previous generations. We're so afraid of doing something wrong that oftentimes we do nothing. So we give the apostles permission to think creatively. We give Calvin and Luther permission to think creatively. 
to do something different. But we don't ever, we rarely give ourselves permission. Why is that? What are we afraid of? To do what they did. Oh, so. Or should we get a therapist? (laughs) (laughs) No, what do you think? I mean, you've experienced these things. What what are people afraid of? Yeah, in the congregations that you're teaching and educating people, what are the fears that you're finding? Well, there's so much censure in our communities, right? If you put a toe out of line, you know, there's shame that's brought on by the community. There's, There's exclusion all of these things and so we don't we don't want that we don't want to be put on the outside we don't want to be cast out like these outsiders and so we better keep in line we better follow the script we better you know recite the confession in whatever version it's in and dare not think differently lest we become an outsider i think we're afraid of becoming outsiders ourselves to our very community. Yeah, I think that's, uh, maybe you're putting the, the nail on the head there. Um, that's the head on the nail, rather. That's, that's it. <laughs> being outsiders, because who wants to be an outsider? It's hard. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, and not to be too, too theological, but it seems like that's exactly what solidarity is about, right? Mm. Um, is taking that step to saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing to risk becoming an outsider in order to be in community with the outsiders. Yeah. And it's hard. You don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to have solidarity with the marginalized and popularity with the powerful. It doesn't work like that. Hmm. That's a good phrase. Which brings me to the entire New Testament. (laughs) It's a good place to go. (laughs) Which has a thing or two to say, and we can throw the prophets in there as well. But yeah, it strikes me, this, this issue, Megan, is one of several issues that the church is either dealing with or going to have to deal with Mm -hmm. that really raises to the forefront the, I I, I don't want to put it negatively, but the complexity and even the ambiguity sometimes of theological decisions. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, living life is hard enough, you know, and and to think you have to have all the right answers all the time just makes it that much harder. But the, the life of faith may be, not as clear as we think, and we're doing the best that we can. And for some people, and you're one of them, and, and I think Jared and I are the same, if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of people and lives and and their experiences and not a system that we think is immovable and unchanging. Because it, oddly enough, the system which comes from the Bible is itself a changing, moving thing. Yeah. Which is a good model for us, I think, to be, it's not going to give us the answers to any particular question, but it is going to drive us to say, you've got to think about, it. you don't get off the hook by quoting Bible passages. Mm-hmm. It, that, but you do have to like study that. them and exactly see right. where they're yep. pointing. Right. Yep. It's exactly which right. is that, that faithful improvisation, which is a yeah. nice connecting. The faithful yeah. is that rootedness yeah. within the text, which you just, your articulation today, appreciate this conversation of, kind of rooting it in these texts and then still saying, but there is still some creativity that has to happen, some improvisation. That fifth act is up to us on how we're going to be faithful to that. And I don't have it all figured out, but what I'm trying to do in my book and in my work is to say, okay, we've done our theological reflection. We've done our biblical study only thinking about these idealized versions of male and female. And that's not good enough. We have to do our biblical study and our thinking theologically about what it means to be human and what it means to be a faithful Christian in a way that includes everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done that yet. And mm-hmm. so let's start a new conversation where we let more voices come and be at the table. And it means voices that have been at the table need to be quiet for a while and listen and see if there's something new to be learned, mm. new perspectives to be had. Right. Being quiet. That's hard. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> Megan, that's, that's, um, I appreciate the way you put that. That's, that's very, very well put. Unfortunately, we could talk for hours about all this. <laughs> so much stuff we're just, and just, you know, handling the Bible and all that. Right. That's, that always comes up in these kinds of conversations, but we're, we're coming to the end of our time. But maybe in closing, 
tell us, you know, where can people find you on the worldwide interwebs? <laughs> what projects are, are you involved in if you're writing another book? Uh, yeah. Make sure you, you, and tell us about the book that you have written and make sure people know what that is. Sure, thanks. You can find me at www.megandefranza.com. Pretty easy to find. Um, and you can see the books that I've written there, chapters and other books, and the main one we've been talking about today, which is Sex Difference in Christian Theology, and the subtitle is Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God, where we spend a lot more time talking about all these things. So you can find me there. One of the things I'm most passionate about is I just started a nonprofit with my colleague, Leanne Simon, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and we have a website intersexandfaith.org, where we're working to educate faith communities about intersex, provide support for intersex people of faith, and advocate for the inclusion of all God's people. <laughs> but one of the things that we're doing, what I'm really excited about, is we are in the process of making a documentary film, which right now is entitled Stories of Intersex and Faith, where people of faith. Right now we have Christians and Jews sharing their stories about being intersex and being people of faith and the good parts of that, the helpful parts of that, and the difficult parts of being intersex and in a faith community. So we're hoping to create that as a full-length documentary, but mm -hmm. I'd also like to use that footage to create a series for churches that will be an educational curriculum with you know, video interviews as right. with others so that we can have better conversations in our communities. Because as you said, if we're not already having these conversations in our churches, you will be next year mm -hmm. or the year after that. Or your kids will force them. Right. right. And so I want to help provide some resources right. for churches having these conversations. And some video clips are on your website already of yep. uh, hope to have the longer documentary eventually. So, yep. right. Okay. That's good. Thanks. All right. Well, listen, Megan, thank you so much. We had a great time talking with you. Very informative. And uh, let's do this again sometime. Thanks for doing what you do. Appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. Good. Bye. Take care. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Bible for Normal People again. If you feel you want to support the podcast and what we do, you can just go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People. Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you next week. bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.